Hey, Pitchfork listeners, this week we're re-releasing one of my favorite episodes, a conversation with Anand Girdadas, the author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. In it, Anand explains why, rather than giving away more money, maybe the super rich might want to consider taking less. This episode was originally recorded in October of 2019, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Anand Giridadas, editor-at-large for Time magazine and author of the book Winner Takes All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. A new book argues that when today's corporate titans and political leaders try to change the world, they actually preserve the societal problems they say they want to solve. If you decide as a Goldman Sachs that you're going to get into the conversation, you're immediately on day one, one of the biggest players in that field, and you are going to distort that conversation. When the rich and powerful get involved in social change, They change, change. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. Nick, you're a really rich guy, right? Apparently. Yeah, and you give away a lot of money. I do. And you do it in two different ways. Some of it is charitable contributions that you get a tax deduction for. Right. And some of it is... Well, it's also charitable, but it's political. Right. It's like what we do in this office. Most of what we do is non-tax deductible. Is non-tax deductible. And which of those two do you think is more effective? Yeah, there's no question. It's the non-tax deductible stuff that is, is more effective because... You know, if you want to make big change, you have to make it at the intersection of policy and politics. And that work, as you know, uh, is not tax deductible. You know, if you write a big check to your own children's private school, tax deductible. If you write the same check to a minimum wage campaign helping thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people you are not related to, not tax deductible. Right. And all of your wealthy friends, they're with you. They understand that the most important way to give away their money is uh, through the non-tax deductible stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, no. And, you know, this is not a new phenomenon. This is something that rich people have done for generations, maybe thousands of years, is we wash away some of our sins by giving a little bit of money to charity. And we ignore the fundamental dynamics that are creating the need for the charity. Which is the vast inequality that has made (laughs) you and your friends so outrageously rich. Correct. And today we get to talk to a super interesting and brilliant guy, Anand Girdadas, who has written this amazing book uh, called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade uh, for Changing the World. And in that book, he makes this very precise argument that we live in a world we refer to often as neoliberalism, as this world where the only thing that matters is money and competition and the richer the rich get, the better off everyone else will be. And if you try to make rich people less rich, then you're actually harming poor people and all that stuff. And he calls that market world. Uh, And he has this very precise and I think important critique of that. 
and believes that we need to be more honest, that we need to start to say that a few people are winning and most people are losing. And that one, it's not just that that's happening, but worse, a lot of the charity that wealthy people engage in either obscures that reality or actively promotes it. So I'm really excited to talk to Anand. I sort of became acquainted with him several years ago for the first time when I saw his, I think it was his first TED Talk. It was based on, a, a, I think, a book he wrote called The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas. And it's the story of this terrible murder that took place of an immigrant in Texas. And he gave this just astounding TED Talk. And you were like, whoa, that dude is really smart and talented. And then more recently, he wrote this uh, really important book, Winners Take All, um, which quickly became required reading here at Civic Ventures. You know, the idea that this is a winners take all economy, that's not new. The, The way he talked back at people like you, yeah, was that really, was new, <laughs> yeah, and and very and very persuasive. And I can tell you definitively that the book had a huge impact, at least at, at this point, in, in terms of the kind of conversations that people were having in big philanthropy around the country, because the critiques are, you know, they're persuasive, and it's hard to get out from under them. So anyway, should be fun to talk to him. I'm Anand Gerdardas. I'm a writer, and I'm the author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. We're huge fans of your book and are in pretty violent agreement with the thesis. But for our listeners, just lay it out. G- give us your perspective. You know, I, I think it's sometimes helpful to to tell people in a way what's not in the book, which is why you did a book and 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 how you get to the place of even beginning. And And I think for me... It was observing two things that I think anybody listening to this, whether you agree or disagree with where I went with it, I think anybody listening to this would agree with the two observations. Um, And observation number one is that we're living in this time in which you cannot bump, you cannot walk down the street in certain zip codes of this country without bumping into a plutocrat trying to change the world. They are doing philanthropy, maybe. Their kid is in Africa right now starting a social enterprise that turns poop into recycled coffee. Uh, They come back from those Africa trips with these like plutocrat bracelets that they all wear when they go to Africa. Um, You know, they are involved in making finance more humane um, by doing impact investing and whatever else. Um, And so all these initiatives um, are really ubiquitous and we all know they're going on. You know, you, you when you go to college campuses, every young person is engaged in some kind of change the world effort. Um, and so on the one hand, we're living in this time in which the very, very rich and powerful seem to be all in on the idea of making the world a better place and aware of inequality and interested in fighting it. On the other hand, we're living in this time in which the same class of people, the same plutocratic class that is doing so much to give and help, essentially has secured for itself and continues to benefit from a near monopoly on the fruits of the future and has essentially rigged the society to function as a casino in which the house, i.e. them, always wins. And so the inquiry behind Winners Take All uh, started with the question, what is the relationship between these two facts, which themselves are not particularly in dispute? 
Um, I think where the dispute comes in is what you think the relationship is. And the conventional wisdom out there is, or was, that the relationship was one of a drop in the bucket. That, yes, we do live in this time in which there is this savage inequality. However, rich people are on the case, stepping up, and, and there's just not enough of them. Or they're not giving enough away. Or they're not stretching their dollars f- you know, far enough by not being effective enough. And that if only there were more of them and they gave it away better and they did this and that, then we could solve these problems. And I started to become intrigued by an opposite possibility. That all this elite uh, magnanimity and, and do-gooding activity was actually part of how we sustain the elite monopoly on the fruits of the future. That in other words, the, the extraordinary helping of our time was how we maintain the extraordinary hoarding. Um, and I did what I do as a reporter, which is I began to report it out. Tease out more how all this do-gooding sustains the inequality and propels it. To start with, I'll say I get that that's counterintuitive to people. Um, yeah. You know, I think what a lot of people who are, you know, I mean, I think if you're like a Coke brother, first of all, my condolences on being a Coke brother or, or being a deceased Coke brother, but... Um, if you are, <laughs> sorry, was that not, was that not spoken? No, you're with you're, 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 you're with kinder you, baby. than me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry. I, I forgot to drink my Coke compassion coffee this morning. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think there's some people who would say like, you know, forget this guy, like who cares about inequality? Right. So, so let's, I'm, I'm not going to have much luck with those people. Um, but if you're, if you're persuaded that, you know, yeah, this inequality thing is a big problem. I think many people, probably most people, the people in a way I was writing to, to force to question, uh, I think many people would say, okay, but at least these people are doing some small thing to help. Isn't it better than doing nothing, right? That's the basic question that my book is up against because my book is a portrait of a series of people and of gestures, which I think at the margin, each of them is an improvement in the condition of the world. If you look at it in isolation and... So the question then becomes, what is this guy saying about the fact that not just the system that produces this wealth in which these people are trying to do a little bit, it's not just that it's not enough, it actively may be upholding the harm, right? And so here's how I make that case. First of all, the the, the simple way to think about it is, if an individual act of do-gooding is abetting a harmful system on a larger scale, then it may actually be a counterproductive deed. Now, that is obvious in cases like the Sacklers behind the opioid crisis, where a relatively small amount of money is enabling a system or a reputation cleansing that literally is allowing harm to be done on a much greater scale than the gift. But the point I was making was broader. And and, and here are some of the ways in which individual acts of do-gooding that are marginally helpful to people that really do make some difference in some people's lives may in fact be contributing to a bad system. A, reputation washing. Right. Mm-hmm. So you got a whole class of people who have cause to be resented in this time, who are, as we know, in many cases, manipulating their company books so they don't pay taxes, um, who are underpaying workers, who are claiming, as Jeff Bezos did, that they're going to give benefits and then pulling the benefits from Whole Foods workers, et cetera, et cetera. And so you got a bunch of people who are doing a bunch of things to make money that would really cause them a lot of 
problems and, and would create bad stories of the kind that would drive people into the streets and would force reform. But for changing their reputation, but for softening their image, but for acquiring a kind of moral glow as philanthropists, they would be in real trouble. I mean, sometimes criminal trouble personally, but, but certainly just kind of reform trouble. And if I may interject, and, and it definitely takes one to know one, they are converting circumstances in which they would have low status into circumstances in which they would have high status, which is all wealth and power really is. <laughs> Correct. The people who work the hardest to be richest are the most status conscious people in our society. That's what mo that's why they work so hard. And the thing that is most important to most people is their status and certainly to status conscious people. And, and I think that this point you make is really important and profound is that if your goal in life is to have as much status as possible, these bad stories are, you know, they're, they're more than just inconvenient. They're, they're a real problem. You know, I'm, I, I, like, I, I'm a parent. I have kids, you know, who you may have even heard in the background screaming. Like, I <laughs> really care about what I, you know, I care less about what book critics think of me than I do about my kids. These people all have sure. kids. Yeah. Right? Yes. No, these people, you know, can't afford to have themselves known as predatory loan sharks. Social pariahs. Right. And I think here the point is that it's a relatively cheap bargain basement way of changing your name. 100%. The rule of thumb that I would use is you can kind of do bad things in the billions and wipe it out with gifts in the millions. The millions. Yeah, for sure. Goodwill is something that corporations actually put on their, their balance sheet. Yeah. And, and some of these programs, you know, when they're done by companies, are literally run out of the marketing department, which reveals everything. Um, yeah. So, so that's kind of thing A. Another thing is that a lot of these acts of do-gooding, even when, when thing A is not involved, even when you're not an economic sinner or someone who's made money in a dishonorable way, the act of giving and then following up on the gift by sitting on boards of things and shaping how it's given and funding research, it confers power. And if you are persuaded by me that the central problem here is actually not a maldistribution of resources, although that's a big problem, but actually a maldistribution of power that has led to a maldistribution of resources. Correct. Um, then a good deed that gives further leadership positions, um, further intellectual sway to the views of that class of people is problematic. So for example, if you decide as a Goldman Sachs um, that you're going to get into the conversation about empowering women, which they did, 10,000 women program, right? You're immediately on day one, one of the biggest players in that field because you're Goldman Sachs. And you are going to distort that conversation, right? You are, when the rich and powerful get involved in social change, they change change. And so to the extent that there are ways of empowering women that involve a wealth tax, because by the way, a lot of the things that a wealth tax would fund, if you look at Elizabeth Warren's plans or others, would be beneficial to all people and women in particular in many cases. Um, that's not going to be part of your report. Yes. That's not going to be the stuff that you're talking about on your panels at the Aspen Institute. But if there's other ideas to empower women, like you know, lean-in feminism, which is, I think, just trying to convince women that thousands of years of patriarchy is a po posture problem. They were just yeah, leaning at exactly. the wrong level of in <laughs> incline. Um, 
Goldman Sachs may go all in for that because that's a way of promoting change. And my point is that distorts, that intervention distorts the change markets, the conversation that we have about change. So that's the second thing. And third, there is, I think, a level of outrage, general outrage, not about specific things specific people did, but about who this society is working for or not, that gets, in a way, obscured and obfuscated by the generalized feeling that rich people are giving back. And it distracts people, in many cases, from the sheer extent of the rigging and the taking. Yeah, so interesting. So there is so much to unpack here. I want to first say that how extraordinarily useful your book and argument has been to our work because it has forced a conversation that needed to be had um, for a super long time. Right. The thing that drives us crazy, to use a local example, are you know the local big companies who will give a million dollars to a homeless shelter and get all these accolades and their CEOs get status and it's like just the, yeah, everybody's like, yay, 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 yay. But when an opportunity comes along to actually enact a tax to address the underlying problem at the scale of the problem, they they'll spend another they'll spend million another dollars million electing million a, to prevent it. Yeah. You know? To elect and, a friendly city council. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's just this sort of ass backwards, just the most insidious process that unfolds. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you said that I mean, because I, you know, it's, it's funny for a writer, you kind of, you sit and you write this thing, then you drop it and then it, it goes and lives its life. I'm always curious how these things, how these conversations happen. So how, like, how specifically have you been able to use the book to change an individual person's mind or a group's mind? I'm curious, like what, how does that actually happen? Can you go into those details, Nick? Well, I can't, I, I can't name names, but I can tell you that your book, which sent shockwaves through the community of people who give a shit ton of money away, it lets somebody like me say, you know, we should be thinking differently about this. And that $25 million you just gave to that very nice nonprofit uh, to help people who are poor could very well be better spent on five minimum wage campaigns that would actually solve the problem. And that has been super useful. I mean, I think of the 50 largest foundations in the country, 75% of them have education as one of their top priorities. Zero of them are working on wages. Yep. But wages is the problem. Yep, that's really interesting. If I give a million dollars to my kid's fancy private school, I get to deduct that from my taxes. If I give a million dollars to a minimum wage campaign, I can't. <laughs> Therein lies the problem, right? It, yeah. Is that we have it, it's the whole thing is upside down and for super obvious reasons, right? It's super cheap to write a million dollar check to the local homeless shelter. It's more expensive to be taxed right. 10 or 20 or 30 million bucks a year to address the problem and at I'll, scale. I'll, I'll tell you a, a story about it. I went to go speak to a, a group of um, it was a coalition of folks that fight homelessness, and it was people who fight it from every angle. So it was like shelter providers, 
rehab clinics, um, you know, and treatment centers, but also funders, philanthropists, individual philanthropists, foundations, nonprofits, it was the whole, anybody who kind of works on that issue in, in one space. And it was a massive room of these people. And many of them had read my book. and We were having this conversation about essentially what you're talking about, that a lot of the people working on these issues are actually unwittingly fighting on both sides of the war. They're doing a good thing for the homeless, but in a way they don't realize they're also helping to cause homelessness. Yes. And, you know, what's interesting for me is I'm a general purpose writer and I write about this as it relates to many different worlds, but I don't know the deep dive on each person's little world. And so I learn a lot by what people tell me about their little world. And yeah. in this little world of the nonprofits that are fighting homelessness, people started to raise their hand and basically talk about, you know, a lot of the people who donate to us, we know in terms of their tax practices or how they pay people, that they They're are a big part of how there is homelessness in our community. Yes. And we as a, you know, a lot of these are younger people who work in these development jobs. Um, a lot of them are women raising money from powerful men. There's an enormous sexual harassment problem, by the way, in that donor, young female development officer relationship that doesn't get talked about enough. And those donors kind of get to, to keep doing it and no one's going to tell them the truth. The people doing the work on the ground with homeless people can't tell them the truth because they're going to need another, another three million next year. Exactly. And, you know, like and homelessness is actually a very interesting example because homelessness by your um, winners take all crowd is treated as a symptom of poverty. And that's a lie. Homelessness is a consequence of inequality. <laughs> and it's the very people who are writing the checks for the homeless shelters whose enterprises are driving the inequality that produces the homelessness. Economic growth is in many ways a good thing, but it's not an unalloyed good. And when right. the rent in a place goes from $500 a month for an apartment to $2,000 a month for an apartment because of that economic growth, which benefits a small minority of people, obviously the consequence of that is a ton of homelessness and a bunch of other um, sort of social pathologies. And to not be able to connect those two things uh, the, the benefits that accrue to some people of growth and the harm that befell other people as a consequence of that growth is, I think, the central sort of narrative problem we face is that people, well, either can't or won't connect these two things. Yeah. I would just tell you that in my, my social world, that is the stickiest and most awkward part of the conversations I have to have with people because everyone I know is com is complaining about homelessness. Right. And right. none of them will admit that it's their fucking fault. <laughs> that, right. That homelessness is a byproduct of the economic system which has benefited them so much. Right. I, I want to push on something you're saying because I, I think this is a, at the very intellectual heart of, of the matter. And uh, in some ways, the basic... There's a kind of litmus test question about where you stand on this and how you see this issue of inequality. Because, frankly, President Trump talked about inequality. Joe yeah. Biden talks about inequality. Elizabeth right. Warren talks about inequality. So at some point, if everybody's talking about it, we, we need to sharpen a little bit. What are the different theories out here? And there is a basic dividing line that I propose in the book, which is whether you have a win-win paradigm or a win-lose paradigm. What you are describing there with homelessness is that some people are homeless because 
the people on top have made certain choices. I fully agree with you on that. I think that maps onto many issues as a true thing. But that is the fundamental thing that most people in power deny. A relationship between those on the bottom and those on top. No one denies, from Joe Biden to Donald Trump to Elizabeth Warren, no one denies that there are some people on the bottom and some people on top. No one denies, I think, that there's too many people on the bottom and that it's life is too hard on the bottom right now in America. No one denies that. The, the question is, are the people down below there in spite of the success of the people on the top or because of the success of the people on the top? And winners take all in some ways is an emphatic argument that the people down below are down there because someone's standing on their back. Someone is standing, in fact, on their neck. And, and, and the reason this is important, when you, then when you start to say, how do I look at these different initiatives that are happening? How do I look at 10,000 women from Goldman Sachs? How do I look at impact investing? How do I evaluate presidential candidates? You should ask yourself, is the theory of change being proposed here one in which we can empower those below by in no way threatening the wealth and power of those on top? Win-win. Or is the theory of change at work by this person or this organization that the only way to do right by those in the bottom is to crimp the power and wealth of those on top? That is a fundamental dividing line in how you see America today. I am strongly, emphatically, because of evidence in the win-lose camp. I think you are too. And I think, by the way, when you look at the 2020 candidates, I think this becomes a very helpful way to evaluate who's who. I want to go deeper on the winners and losers uh, dynamic because I think it's true but nuanced. So I know Jeff Bezos extremely well, and I can uh, attest to the fact that he is the most galactically talented person I've ever met. And I've met a lot of people, right? And there is almost no scenario in which Jeff Bezos would not have come out on top. Uh, maybe but, not as a professional football player, right. <laughs> but certainly yeah, he it, may not have become the richest person in the no, world. But no, he, no, no, you no, think no. he was going to become uh, the richest person absolutely. in the world no matter but what? But the question <laughs> is: the question is, how rich and how much wealth should the system provide for the most capable and hardworking person in the society relative to others? So Jeff Bezos's net worth, and I use that word worth. <laughs> uh, cautiously, because I think the word misexplains what's actually right. happening. It, uh, it, um, it, it implies that he deserves it. Exactly. But obviously, if Jeff was required to pay every worker connected to Amazon, whether they were his direct employer or a contractor, enough to live in dignity, his net worth might not be in the hundreds of billions. It might be in the tens of billions. Now, does that mean that Jeff Bezos lost? Anand, I would submit No. I think when I hear people trying to frame an argument like that, yeah, I hear the immense power in our culture, the pressure in our culture to tell the powerful that they too will benefit from social change. Now, you may be right as a descriptive fact. I mean, I actually think it's true to a certain extent that when you, you know, when you don't have so many people desperate, it's a more fun society for rich people, too. There's a, there's a yeah. truth to that, certainly. But I think we have to overcome the cultural pressure we, we feel, and we all feel if you've been part of the culture of the United States in the last 40 years, to reassure rich people that there's not genuine loss involved. The same way we 
you know, you can make some, you know, sonorous Obama-esque claim about how what is happening now demographically <laughs> in the United States is, is, is good for white people too. And in a certain sense it is. But I think we actually get real social problems when we're not honest with people about the yeah. fact that we are asking them to lose something. Yes. And I think it'd be a better society he's living in. But to be honest, I think in a in a fairer America, you know, Jeff Bezos may have a couple billion dollars if that. And we might have invested, you know, through a wealth tax and other taxes and through, frankly, higher minimum wages that would have crimped his thing on the pre redistribution side. You know, we might have invested a hundred billion dollars that is currently his net worth into the society and reap yeah. all kinds of benefits out of that. And I don't want to sit here and lie and say that would entirely be a gain from him. I mean, if he had a, if he had a billion dollars instead of what he has now, he would not be running his own space program. His room for error to fail at Amazon would be drastically smaller if he didn't have the kind of money he has. So we got to be real with people. I am willing no, that's fair. to actually have that guy have less power, less of a say, less, money. less yeah. of a seat at the table. For sure. In order to make you know, $100 billion worth of investments in the common good in this country over the last 10 years. The thing about you, Anand, is you have a way with words. <laughs> and I think um, uh, this frame you have that generosity is not justice is an extremely important part of this thread that we have to, we need to build a world which is more just. And if you are going to bend the arc of history towards justice, you are mostly going to antagonize rich and powerful people. Right. That's just that is it. <laughs> yeah. Increasing amounts of justice means that the most powerful will have less power and less say and almost certainly less money. And that is just that's just sort of an arithmetic fact. You're arguing against the Econ 101 textbook here. You, you're yes. arguing for a non Pareto optimal world. Yeah, exactly. I specifically think about Econ 101 because I want to tell you the following thing, which is I went to the University of Michigan. I enrolled in the fall of 1999. I took Econ 101, I guess, either that fall or, I don't know, maybe it was my second year, first year or something. And I remember exactly as you say, I remember learning, you know, like, all parties benefit from trade. Yeah. There may be some transitional thing, but like both sides benefit, like both countries become richer. Off the we were in fucking Michigan. We were in <laughs> yeah. Michigan. It was 1999 in Michigan. <laughs> when I started going to grocery stores outside Ann Arbor... I realized that there were, you know, Bosnia-like economic conditions yeah. 20 minutes in every direction. Yeah, right. How could they still have been teaching in 1999 that trade benefits all people? A lot of this, like, if any other discipline were allowed to operate on the bullshit assumptions of economics and then completely guide how we organize the modern world, yeah. it would be a scandal. It would be a scandal. You just assume everything away. And, and so that's a big part of it. And, and it is economic logic, you're exactly right, that has pushed this win-win thing. Whereas anybody who studies politics and power as their lens or sociology yeah. sure. completely understands that, you know, a lot of the time someone's down because someone's on their neck. And this becomes a lot easier to see when you go to historical episodes. You know, our, we're all biased about our own time, but we're all more clear-eyed about other people's times, right? So if you say... In Downton Abbey, or the world of kind of feudal England or the feudal world a while ago, are the people on the edge of the property who don't own the land but farm it and pay rent, or are the servants and drivers living in the basement, 
are they there just because they haven't quite gotten into the castle yet? Or are they there because of what the people in the castle do, because of the system that they benefit from and fight to defend? And it's super obvious that they are down there because you are up there. And if you go to slavery in the South and you say, are the slaves slaves simply because they haven't become white masters yet? Or are they there because white masters are perpetuating a system that keeps them below? You say, it is obvious that they are down there because you are up here. And you go to the caste system in India and you say, are people untouchables just because they haven't read enough books to become a Brahmin yet? Or are the Brahmins actually maintaining a system that invents them as untouchables and keeps them down there. And you say, yes, it's obvious that the people are down there because someone is standing on their neck. And so then the question becomes, why is it that when we look at our own society, we suddenly unlearn what we have learned through history, which is that when you have an injustice, there's usually someone benefiting from it. And that person usually needs to be moved out of the way and have their power reduced in order for justice to be done. It's the cult of the market. In our popular culture, we celebrate both wealth and philanthropy. And part of that assumption is that, you know, better to let rich people like Nick give away his money than get, have the government do it because the government is always yeah. inefficient and this, this market of philanthropy will be wiser. Yeah, After look, all, he's really smart. He made all this money. He must right. know how to spend it. We got to talk about that, though. That's a, I mean, like, so Michael Dell recently I mean Davos in January made a version of this argument when he was asked about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman's uh, tax yeah. proposal, the tax, you know, high incomes, 70% marginal income tax rate. And he basically used his foundation to say, you know, we give money away in this really effective way, and therefore it's much better to have us do that than the government. A couple things. First of all, this idea that government is inefficient it just passes through rich people chatter as like an yes. undisturbed hypothesis. Actually, it's just not true. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. Our um, healthcare system is way more private than all the other rich countries, and it is way less efficient than all the other rich countries. So that's kind of complicated for that thesis. It's also true that programs like Social Security are some of the most efficient things in the history of the world. And you'd have old people like bleeding out on the streets without them. And... They're not only efficient, but tremendously effective. Pick any area of life. Old people, which rich person or corporation has done more for old people than Social Security has? Which rich person or corporation has done more for black people than the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act? Which organization, including Sheryl Sandberg, she can compete, has done more for women than, you know, suffrage? Um, the, the reality is this idea that solving things through policy is inefficient is straight up corporate propaganda. Are there government programs that are inefficient? Sure. Is there money spent in government that doesn't add social value? Sure. Do you want to start listing companies that spend money that don't add social value? Does Exxon add social value? Does Pepsi add social value? I mean, how many companies in the Fortune 500 add social value? So a lot of things are not perfect. Uh, I don't think government is especially imperfect. And I think the reality is the biggest civilizational achievements uh, like the fact that something you don't think about very often in America that I think about as someone whose family came from India, who travels all around the world. You go out to eat in India, you're rolling the dice on getting sick. I can't remember the last time I ever got sick in a restaurant in America. That is yeah. a gigantic civilizational achievement that was achieved through government, through policy and law. Yeah, for sure. We would be remiss if we did not zero in on whether somebody like me yeah. can indeed 
play a constructive role in all of this? Is he just spinning his wheels here? We've reached the therapy portion. So I'm going to just mark the time now. And I'll just, I, I will only bill you for this, for this part of the, <laughs> okay. for this part of the hour. Yeah. <laughs> just lay down. So look, uh, it's a very important question. And I am often misunderstood on this score, which, you know, I guess you can only blame yourself. I mean, I uh, clearly I haven't communicated it well. Um, but I said in my first interview, that I think the opening day of the book in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, look, in a better world, in a better America, rich people will have less money in general. They will, ha- they will make less money while they're on the making end. More of it will be taken through wealth taxes and other devices. They will have net worths way lower than Jeff Bezos's. And we will actually have fewer social problems for them to solve through philanthropy because a lot of that money that we've taken from them would, would be invested, right? So yeah. that's the world I want to get to. By the way, someone stood up recently in June at a book event I was doing in London. And he was like, you know, you guys are talking about all these social problems. I just want to say I'm from, I'm from Sweden. We do not have a lot of philanthropy there, uh, but we also don't have any of the social problems you all were talking about today on stage. And then yeah, he sat right. back down. Yeah. Um, so I want to live in a world like that. However, yeah. I am a realist um, in addition to being an idealist. And I understand that we don't live in that world now. And we may not live in that world ever. And we're not going to live in it for you know 10 years at a minimum. And so the question is, like, if you are a rich person, as you are, persuaded of that eventuality of, of wanting to get there, but you want to know what to do today... I do absolutely believe there are better ways to give that would help hasten the advent of this fairer society and fairer system. And there's other ways to give whose primary, while it may assist some people, primary effect would be to shore up the bad system, right? There is system busting philanthropy uh, and there is system enhancing philanthropy. There is um, a de-rigging philanthropy and there is rigging philanthropy. So let's talk about what exists within the de-rigging group, within the the system busting group. And I'll give you, you know, I'm actually working on a a, a project to to try to to guide rich people into some of these areas. So let's pick up let's pick a few of these areas. Yeah. If you say I want to fund a billion dollar effort, raise a fund to do a billion dollar effort to lay the groundwork to get money out of politics. Now that could by the way be part philanthropic, it could be part political action committee. We, we could talk about how you do that, right? That's sort of like a Koch brothers type of initiative where you're working all sides of the you know, yeah. IRS tax code with the philanthropic and this and that. But more importantly, a billion dollars to try to get money out of politics would, on the one hand, be a big exertion of philanthropic power, rich people power, something like someone like you could absolutely lead and get involved in. However... If it succeeded, it would drastically reduce the power of that class, of your class. Yeah. Right? And that is the paradigmatic example that I'm trying to get at here. What, are, what is traitor to your class giving? Right? Yeah. So that's a, that's a good example. Here's another traitor to your class giving. If we were to say there's a bunch of lawyers right now in America fighting for educational equity, basically trying to win cases saying that unequal funding by property tax is unconstitutional. Right now, it is very constitutional. And so as you know, you go to Marin or Greenwich or Evanston, and they got some very nice public schools ring-fenced for their district. The money stays in that district. Mommy or daddy has a nice house, so you get a nice public school. And then everybody else has schools that are strapped. It's immoral. It should be unconstitutional. Now, you can get things like that rendered unconstitutional, but it takes like 
20 years. And you got to farm cases and you got to alter public opinion and you got to, you know, start some stealth initiative at the Federalist Society convincing right wing judges that this actually violates Christian values. It takes like a concerted project of work as they did in the gay rights cases. The people doing that do not get the kind of funding that the people doing charter schools get. For sure. So a billion dollar initiative to help those lawyers. There are areas, and and we could go on, but there are multiple areas of system-busting philanthropy, a philanthropy that would actually tend to push us in a direction of solving these problems uh, in ways that have the following four criteria. Public, democratic, institutional, and universal. And we need to, rich people can give in ways that increase the odds of us solving more and more of our problems that way. You know, I've often thought that we need a new language of philanthropy, that, that we actually need four or five words, new words, to describe the different kinds of giving from the most self-interested, which is to give a big donation to some college that you want to get your kid into, you know, to the polar opposite, where you are working in a way to increase justice directly, which contravenes your power. Right. And, when, well, when, yeah. you, when you give political money to raise your own taxes, you are contravening your own yes, personal interests. Right, exactly. And that, that should be called something different than donating to your own kid's private school. You know, there is this conversation that's happening now around what is the ethics of, of that kind of credit. But I think there's a more basic question here, which would really get these people's attention, which is it's not just do you give people you know, credit, do you actually give a tax deduction? For these donations. Yes. And, yeah. and here's right. what I propose. I, you know, there's some people who want to abolish the tax deduction altogether. There's some people who that, I think that's me. would want to have it limited, you know, so that regular people giving $100 to United Way could get it, but plutocrats giving away a billion dollars don't get it. That's another smart proposal out there. There's some people who don't want it touched because they feel America so dependent on that largesse. He, here's an, another idea that I have, and I don't I don't even know that I would, would vote for my own idea relative to maybe yours, but, but a thought, which is that what if we made the tax deduction for philanthropy conditional on how public-spirited the gift actually is? It should be on a sliding scale. <laughs> Correct. And so, and so here's a few things on that scale. If you get your name on it, right? If you're putting your name on a building, yeah. the whole world's going to know you did it then I think you don't get the tax deduction because what you're purchasing is a reputation shoe polish. And, yeah, exactly. And you're purchasing that's fine. That's a, that's, a, that's a service. That's not a gift, right? You're buying a service. You don't get a tax deduction for buying the naming rights on a stadium. It's, and it, it, in, in that sense, a lot of these things are identical. Um, right. yeah. Number two, if you are a meddler... After you give, you sit on the board, your kids are on the board, your, you know, your nephew is an intern, you are asking for quarterly or weekly PowerPoints from the staff, which they have to spend the entire week preparing instead of actually doing the programmatic work. If you're a meddler and you insist on using the gift to exert more and more power over society, knock yourself out. No tax deduction. You are buying the right. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of you know older people don't have necessarily a lot to do after they've made all their money. They're in their 60s or 70s. They love these board meetings. They love having these young women call them and give them updates. Like you don't get a tax deduction if you're if you're using that kind of giving to like have a friend phone you. We could then talk about you know if you have set up some mechanism for the public to have some say in what you're doing. If you've you know allowed 
a certain amount of community involvement. If you've allowed people receiving the grants to shape the thing, then maybe you get the, the tax deduction. If you haven't, you haven't. You don't. Basically, what I'm suggesting is the tax deduction we give, which costs tens of billions of dollars a year to the taxpayer, we are giving because we are essentially saying, I think, you are doing a public service that is saving us money as a society. So we'll reimburse you for some of that. You're doing, you're doing some of the stuff that we would do if you didn't do it. But that's actually often not the case. And we need more uh, of a check to make sure that these gifts that the public is helping subsidize are actually public-spirited. I actually think it's it's easier just to eliminate all tax deduction. I mean, only 25% of filers actually itemize anyway. So, you know, if it was up to me, you just remove all deductions entirely, and you have, that's how you simplify the tax code. But uh, we have a closing question for you. We ask all our guests, why do you do what you do? I think I write and write nonfiction and try to think about books as biopsies of a society at a moment in, in time. And I do that because I think in a, in a large and complex and affluent society such as ours, there are so many people who are so invested in stories about reality that sometimes reality is a casualty. And I think about writers as the people who are paid to tell the clear-eyed truth, they're not paid to rep a particular company and make it look good or paid to uh, represent a particular ideology or party. And while it's important that a lot of people out there are doing those kinds of jobs, building things, repping things, advocating for things, I think it's important to keep around a certain number of village gossips who talk to people, who find out what people really think and try to tell the truth. I got especially lucky with this book that the truths in this book were not my private truths. They weren't things that only I thought. They were, in the way of the village gossip, the thing that a lot of people secretly thought but couldn't say because they got a job. Their health care depends on going back to that foundation tomorrow. And I think it's important to have some people in the society to whom people whisper about the truths they can't say um, because those people, those writers, can say it in their stead. I love it. That's a good answer. We want to thank you for your time and uh, for your work. And I think you and I are going to be on a panel in New York uh, for The New Yorker, maybe? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. i about that. So that'll be super fun. And uh, I'll shoot you a note. and Maybe we can have a cup, cup of coffee, too, or something like that. Yeah, I would, I would love that. Okay, man. Thank well, you so right. much. Thanks so much. Take care. Great talking to Bye. you. Bye. All right. I, I got to tell you, Nick, I was a little disappointed that <laughs> he, didn't, you he didn't hand you your he head on a platter. He was surprisingly <laughs> unmean to me, wasn't he? Yeah, well, maybe yeah. that's just you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I, was, I was ready for more. But still, it was a super interesting conversation. And I think he's such a remarkably articulate thinker and speaker. It's really cool to get to talk to him directly. Yeah, and it's hard to overstate, I think, the influence he's had with his book and his public appearances mm -hmm. over the past few years, because we really have been living in an era in which we have celebrated extreme wealth and celebrity yeah. and celebrated the, the philanthropy uh, from you and your wealthy friends, and uh, he's starting to open eyes yeah. to what the real costs of all this uh, right. have been. And again, I think it's worth, just for a second, 
more deliberately and more precisely tying this conversation back to economics, right? right? Because this is an economics podcast and his book was not strictly speaking about economics. But, you know, the thing about economics is that it isn't a science. It's mostly a narrative. It's how human societies rationalize who gets what and why. It's how we instantiate our social and moral preferences about status, privileges, and power. And I think that he has spoken very directly to those things. He has spoken very directly to the kind of ideas that have shaped our culture, which in turn have shaped how we think about economic policy and all the things that touch that. And pointing out that philanthropy as it's used today by folks like the Sacklers and the opioid crisis that they created. It's a form of reputational money laundering that actually distracts from the true cause of the problem. I mean, what we argue in our office and what you have argued to your wealthy friends is that you need to spend your money better in the sense that you are addressing the symptoms, but not the disease. You know, yes. you give money Correct. to fund a homeless shelter rather than addressing the the structural inequalities in the economy that, that lead produce that make that people produce, homeless. That produce yeah. homelessness. He goes a little further where it's not just you need to spend your money yeah. more wisely. Maybe you shouldn't have so much money. Right. The world would be a better place indisputably if the wealthiest citizens had less and everybody else had more. You would just have, and you would have less need for, for <laughs> less philanthropy. Less need for philanthropy. <laughs> exactly, obviously. Right. Anyway, very interesting conversation. Fun to have him on. I'm glad he wasn't mean to me. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.